All right, guys, I'm Scott Horton. It's another Q&A show. I'm on the line with Phil, and um, he's going to sit here and ask me questions that we took from you guys in the Reddit room, and um, I'm going to sit here and try to answer them for you. So how's it going, dude? Dude, it's going. Good. Back at it. So what do we got? Oh, I guess I could say the date. It's the 22nd of July, 2019. Okay, go ahead. It is David Spade's birthday, actually. You don't say. For anyone who cares, yeah. It's also actually. He mine. used to be a skateboarder when there, he was a kid, so a little bit. Oh of yeah, so did Jason Lee. Jason yeah. Lee was not just a skateboarder, but he was a pioneer in the street skating revolution of the very early nineteen nineties, man. He was badass. He was on blind with Mark Gonzalez and was man, something else before he was something else. But anyway. Oh, do you do you wanna do you wanna talk about that a little bit? Just great 360 flips. He was the one who, I guess other people had done 360 flips on street, but he just had them so dialed that it really, I think it changed the idea of just what kind of freestyle stuff you could do downstairs and that kind of thing that people hadn't really thought of. So, you know, he's a really important pioneer in that era. But anyway. Oh, right on. People probably don't care much about that. Except the people who do. (laughs) Cool. Question one, can Scott give into some detail about the origins of the current Israeli border? I read an article that he mentioned that Rothbard wrote, but I'd love to get more details on the U.S. involvement and what actually happened in 67. Okay, so, I mean, the Israeli story is that they preemptively attacked Egypt that was about to attack them, and then... Syria jumped in and Jordan jumped in and Israel beat them all. It's the six-day war. And as a result, they got the Sinai Peninsula from Egypt and Gaza. And from Jordan, they took the West Bank. And from Syria, they took the Golan Heights. And um, so shortly after that, I guess, I think during Nixon... Um, I think Nixon insisted that they give the Sinai Peninsula back. That could have been later on. In fact, that might have even been part of the Camp David Accord. You know what? I'm really bad on that. It was either it was either kind of right away under Nixon or it was in 79 under Carter as part of the Camp David Accord where, the, where Israel finally made a permanent peace with Egypt. Um, and I'm sorry that I'm falling down on the job on that one for you here. Um, however, uh, what's really at issue is, first of all, the Golan Heights, which Israel officially annexed in 1981. Well, first of all, I should say they ethnically cleansed a bunch of Druze from there and stole all their farmland. There's still some that live there and some who became Israeli citizens, but I think a minority. Uh, it was tens of thousands of Druze lived there, as I, uh, I think, you know, low tens of thousands, but I think, you know, 10 or 20 or something, 30,000, something like that. Um, yeah. And then, uh, but essentially that land was, was uh, taken at the time. The, a bunch of the Druze were cleansed. And then in 1981 was when Israel officially, under their law, annexed the territory, which is not recognized in international law or by the supermajority of the states of the world um, in any sense. It's Syrian territory. They've just taken it. Only now Donald Trump has said that America recognizes Israel's annexation of the Golan Heights, which is everything, because America is the, 
800 pound gorilla that gets to decide what the law really says. And so there's that. Um, just essentially get that out of the way to get to the real heart of the problem, which is the occupation of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. Now, it's true that they actually did ethnically cleanse another, um, I think it was even like 100,000 or, or more people in 67 uh, who you know fled to other countries. Um, it might have even been like 200,000. Um, it was, you know, a continuation of the Nakba, essentially. In 1967, there were more Palestinians were forced out of historic Palestine altogether. That, you know, the land between the river and the sea there. South of did Lebanon, they just go North to Syria? Or, huh? I mean, where, where did they all go? Like Syria? Like any other neighboring well, you know, a lot safe of them, haven? Yeah, they went, a lot of them went to Syria and to Jordan and to countries in North Africa, Libya and Tunisia. And many went to Kuwait. And there were, I think, hundreds of thousands of them were in Kuwait. But then um, when Iraq invaded Kuwait, uh, Arafat took Saddam's side. And so the Kuwaitis kicked all of the Palestinian refugees out in revenge, uh, which was, you know, even worse hardship for them. Yeah, Uh, which would only really intensify like their hatred towards like Israel, which is like, hey, thanks for dumping all these guys on our land. Yeah. I mean, well, it's from the point of view of the governments. I don't know how the yeah. I don't think the the populations of those countries are necessarily very resentful against the Palestinians. Oh, no. I just meant like Arafat and Saddam. And then they're like, oh, we got all these leftover Palestinians. Like, thanks, Israel. Like, get out kind of deal. So but the thing is, you have in 1948, forget morality, but just being descriptive here. OK, in 1948, yeah. When they created the state of Israel, they committed this massive sectarian and ethnic cleansing campaign. Yeah. And they just kicked all the Muslims and uh, not all, but the vast majority of Muslim and Christian Arabs off of their land uh, and into the West Bank, the Gaza Strip and and other countries at that point. 750,000 people were ethnically cleansed from their land at that time. Thousands of them were murdered and massacred and killed in battle and whatever at the time as well. That's the Nakba. And what it did was it led to an 80-20 super duper majority for the Israeli Jews. So they could be a quote Jewish state and a democracy too um, because the numbers favored it to such a degree. So there are uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel who are not Jewish, who were some of the Palestinians who were left behind the lines and ended up being grant, you know, during the Nakba and then ended up being granted citizenship after a time, although they really are treated like second or third class citizens for a lot of reasons. But the real question, you know, as as um, you put it, too, is about the borders. And that is the point is, again, I'm not talking about morality, what would have been right or wrong or anything like that. I'm saying the way things worked out was. When they took this territory, as I said, they did they did kick out another couple hundred thousand Palestinians, but there were still, you know, at that time, hundreds of thousands left. There are millions. There are now like six million Palestinians in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. They are essentially, if you count all the Palestinians in the West Bank, the Gaza Strip and Israel proper, so-called the the uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, then you're talking about 
essentially a 51% majority of the population already. And so they weren't all cleansed like the Nakba of 48, where everybody was kicked out of the territory. Israel took the territory, but they just essentially stole all the people too. And they've kept them under not just martial law, as we would understand it, but under war law, under the rules of a foreign army occupying territory. You know, for all this talk about the Palestinian Authority, it's really no such thing. I mean, it was created under the Oslo Agreement as essentially a state government in waiting, a national government in waiting to be. But they never got independence. They're not really a government at all. They're like the trustees in a prison and one that is run by the Israelis and the Israelis and you know, you can't say that they're enslaved because the Israelis don't want them, right? It's not like they have, they're forcing them all to pick cotton or whatever. They're just denying them all of their rights. They want them to eventually just lay down and die or run away or do something so they can have that West Bank. And as the Israelis call it, Judea and Samaria. In other words, your plain old natural property rights don't count because we have ancient mystical supernatural property rights that say that we can continue to steal all of this land. And so the Palestinians can't even have their measly 22% of Palestine that they were left after 1948. They can't even have that. And as Benjamin Netanyahu has made very clear, Oslo is absolutely as dead as can be. There never will be a Palestinian state of any description demilitarized, which what's a demilitarized state anyway? Nothing, right? But anyway, um, there won't be one of those either. Uh, there will never be an independent Palestine. And, and Netanyahu says from the river to the sea, it'll be an Israeli monopoly on security forever, no matter what. And, and they're even talking now outright about annexing the West Bank outright, or at least, you know, the parts of it that they've already colonized um, and, and outright annexing essentially all of the settlements, which would mean which would absolutely positively beyond anyone's point of even pretending to argue would preclude the idea of ever having an independent Palestine uh, on the West Bank of any kind. And now the Gaza Strip, the Israelis don't want so much. There used to be some settlers in there. Sharon pulled them out in 2005 because they were essentially like acting as human shields uh, for the Palestinians on their own terms. I and mean, they were trying to conquer the land, but they made it so that the Israeli government couldn't go to war against the people of Gaza all the time because there were Jewish settlers there too. But once they pulled the Jewish settlers out, then they could just lay the lay siege to the dang thing and turn it into a maximum security prison. You know, they talk about, uh, you know, immigrants on the southern border, whether it's OK to use the term concentration camp for them or not. How about Gaza Strip, where for the crime of being born not Jewish or for being the grandson of someone who was ethnically cleansed from his house back in 1948, you have to live in squalor in essentially a giant concentration camp, like an Indian reservation, but worse. And and no sea travel, no airport, no freedom of movement anywhere. You know that massive refugee crisis in 2015 and all that that caused all this upheaval and all this reaction? And you yeah. go, yeah, it was Afghans, Pakistanis, Yemenis, 
Somalis, Iraqis, Syrians, Libyans. Wow, it's starting to sound like they're all refugees from the countries that the USA has destroyed. But then you say, how come there's no Palestinian refugees? And it's because they're locked in prison. They can't even flee. That's why. It's not that they don't have desperate... You know, it's not that they're not living in sewage because of the Israelis. It's because they cannot even go. And anyway, it's an absolute catastrophe. It's a human rights catastrophe. And and it's all America's fault. I mean, it's all Israel's fault, but they could never do it without the USA, the diplomatic support, the military support, the financial support, the writ of impunity to get away with the monstrosity that is the Israeli occupation of the Palestinians. It's disgusting. Yeah, clearly. I mean, it sounds like they're trying to give all these Palestinians the (laughs) Assange treatment to where he can't escape and they just kind of want him to rot in a cell. Yeah, and then they just lie about him and go, oh yeah, he spread feces on the wall and blah, blah, blah. They're all terrorists and they're all, you know, monkey men. And not real humans like us, and we can do whatever we want with them, which is just crazy, which is just a lie. It's stupid. It's completely so, stupid. So, of those hundred thousand Palestinians that were still there, like even that team, which death that were still where? Cleansed, well, um, you said that there were still a bunch of Palestinians that that were. Oh yeah, there were still, still hundreds and hundreds of, thou- of thousands yeah. of Palestinians left in the West Bank in '67. Now there were, I think, as many as a couple hundred thousand were cleansed, but then there was, you know, as many as a million were left or something like that too. And then that's grown up to six million by now, if okay. you count so, Gaza too. Of those, how many of them are Jewish? How many of them are Muslim? How many of them are Christian? None of them are Jewish. None of them are are Jewish. 80% are Sunni Muslims and 20% are Christians. (laughs) But our allies are Sunnis. And so what's the deal with that? Well, I mean, as far as... Just because they're Palestinians and they're like dirt people to them? Well, I mean, in other words, does the government, does the king of Jordan or the king of Saudi Arabia care about them or not? No, of course not. They don't care about anybody but themselves to the to the extent that they're useful as a political football to them. Sure. And you know what? This is a horrible argument you hear all the time from the Zionists. Like, well, the Arabs all screwed them over, too. Yeah. So that makes the Israelis just like the Arabs screwing them over. Pretty great way to claim the moral high ground there, huh? And all they're doing by screwing them over is what? Leaving them to the tender mercies of the Israelis. Is what is meant by screwing them over is not defending them from Israeli aggression. So that means Israel's twice the villain as King Hussein or King uh, Salman, even though they are, of course, horrible on this. They've done virtually nothing to protect these people. So Oslo is what Ariel Sharon in the 90s tried to negotiate no, with, Rabin. right? Rabin before he was assassinated in 1995 and the deal was it was always going to be some rump state it was never a real god's honest two-state solution yeah or else there wouldn't be any motivation for israel to keep going if there's actually a deal yeah i mean the thing is there's uh i mean the entire right the the entire israeli political system is right wing virtually and 
the idea is that they want the West Bank Keller high water. Oslo to them is nothing but a stalling tactic. You know, you could go your whole life long and have died of natural causes by now, listening to the peace process this and the peace process that. Does anybody ever say, yes, we're granting independence to the West Bank and Gaza Strip finally? No. Does anybody ever even use that term ever? No. Because the whole thing is just a big hoax. The whole thing was, and you know what? I don't know exactly what Rabin would have done, but a Netanyahu fan shot him in the head, or was it the chest? So anyway, we'll never know. Jesus. Um, but uh, certainly since then, the two-state solution has been dead all this time, but what a perfect and useful illusion that if only these you know, barbarian terrorists would ever get their act together and just promise to recognize that Israel is a Jewish state on their own land and all of this on all of Israel's terms and never fight again, then um, they would have their way. And yet they just never will act right. And so we don't ever have to give them justice. And so but in, in 2005, George Bush said, well, the Palestinian authority isn't elected. So who are they to negotiate on behalf of the Palestinian people? They're not even Democrats, George W. Bush said. So then they held an election and Hamas won. And they said, well, Hamas is terrorists. We don't care if they got elected or not. You know, of course, they have an armed brigade, the Kassim Brigade, but it's a political organization. There's, you know, the IRA and Sinn Féin. And there, you know, there's a Sinn Féin in Hamas. It's a political organization and it's essentially a state. They provide social services and all of these things. They're elected to power. So then Elliot Abrams and the Bush administration and the Israelis and Egyptians cook up a coup to arm up the Palestinian Authority to attack them, Fatah, to attack them and drive them out of power violently, which backfires, and the American Stooges lose, and now Hamas rules the West, the Gaza Strip, and then that becomes the excuse for the siege, when the whole thing was a put-on by the Americans and the Olmert government in the first place. I'm telling you, man. It's, you know, people go, oh yeah, well, what about Tibet? Well, you know what? It's the Chinese that are occupying Tibet. Israel is America's 51st state. Okay, this would be like, you know, if the Alaskan government was continuing to (laughs) mercilessly persecute every last Eskimo. It's my business. It's yours, too. How much does uh, Sykes-Pico relevant to all of this? Well, yeah, I mean, Woodrow Wilson ruined everything. He created communism, he created Nazism, and he expanded the, and he created Japanese militarism, and he created, um, he expanded the British Empire by a million square miles in the Middle East. And the British and the French carved it up, and what had been loosely (laughs) defined districts under Ottoman rule um, Mm -hmm. became hardened borders. And you know what, though? I mean, the Sunnis ruled Baghdad for a couple of thousand years, 1300 years. Um, So um, I don't think the Shia ever ruled the capital there. And Baghdad, of course, was always, you know, the major city of importance in in that part of the place. But I don't know that the power there really dominated the Kurds and the Shia as much as the Ottomans dominated all of them. Although I'm no expert on the history of the Ottoman Empire and what have you the hell. But it's certainly the case that the British came and drew borders wherever suited them. 
such as drawing the state of Kuwait, uh, which had always been a province of Iraq under Ottoman rule. And um, of course, the diagonal line there between Syria and um, Iraq, which, you know, I don't know exactly how close those societies were before that line was drawn there and whatever, but clearly made some difference in the modern era. I mean, this, this all happened back in the 1920s. So you have entire generations going by with under those borders and that kind of thing. So things change, but yeah, I mean, essentially this is the curse of the old world, right? Is none of the borders are in the quote unquote right place. If you're going by supposed ethnic solid, you know, borders or whatever, however people want to define these, um, national groupings, they're always, the definition is always too strict and the line is always in quote unquote the wrong place according to essentially everybody's criteria. And so, you know, it's, uh, they'll continue to fight about it forever and ever. The, the only solution to that, of course, is property rights and individual liberty. But America just killed 2 million people in the name of that. So, that's not going to, uh, you know, nobody's shopping for uh, what they're selling when it comes to that anymore. That's for sure. I'm really being reminded of when you had Trita Parsi on, I think, in February. And I really loved how he explained the doctrine of periphery of the, the, you know, kind of hidden, not on the surface relationship with Iran and uh, Israel. And when you were, were talking about the Tuesday solution of Oslo, that's not going to happen. That really kind of made me think of that. Um do you know if you could kind of just like go over the whole like doctrine of periphery? Sure. Like as so everybody as has to read Trita Parsi's book, Treacherous Alliance. And man, it is a PhD thesis that he expanded into a book and it reads like it. But man, it's all original journalism and reporting. You check all those footnotes in the back. They're all interviews he did with the highest level strategists of America, Israel and Iran. The only people he couldn't talk to were the Iraqis, but they're at the center of it all, too of course. And um, so what it is, it's great too. The perspective is so enlightening because never mind any of this goofy crap you see on TV. It doesn't have anything to do with anything, right? This is all looking at the world through the eyes of the highest level strategists in these countries and what they thought about what the other countries thought that they were doing at this time and at that time and what have you. And it's just a great perspective to look at this from. Um, and see. And what you see really is that what's going on a lot of the times on TV is the exact opposite of the real truth. So one example of that is the old, mean old Ayatollah Khomeini, who led the revolution or inherited it in 79 and ruled till 89 when he died. Um, he would say, oh, Israel, we're going to burn you to the ground, rah, rah, rah. And the Israelis would say, hey, cool, you want to buy some missiles? And he'd be like, yeah. And so it was all just a big ruse. And in fact, the more that he threatened them, the more it was cover for secret uh, intelligence cooperation and arms sales and all of, you know, training uh, contracts and all this stuff. And so now I'm not saying it's always like that, but that's kind of how cynical the whole business is. But then what the book is really about is how Iran balances Iraq against Israel and how Israel balances Iraq against Iran and how America uses Israel and Iran to balance against Iraq and then Iraq to balance against Iran again. And then this, that, and the other thing. And then it's all told from the point of view of the thinking of all the people at the time of why they decided to do it this way and why they decided to do that. 
And it's just hilarious to see the real truth of how it all plays out, where from 1979 through about 1990, what, three or four or five, uh, I guess 90, 93 or four, um, the Israelis got along fine with the Iranians. They didn't care about the Iranian revolution. They didn't care about radical Islam as some kind of threat or whatever. It had nothing to do with anything. Um, I thought the whole like Iran threat started right when the Soviet Union fell. Was there like a few years of lag time after that? Well, no. See, it's right in there. Exactly. And Trita Parsi has the great quote from the Israeli strategist saying, you see, radical Islam, which is perfectly very broad and can apply to who any Muslim you want, whether, you know, it's Saddam Hussein who worships only himself or whether it's Al Qaeda or whether it's the Ayatollah or whether it's Hamas or whoever you want to kill. As long as they say they believe in Mohammed, then you can call it Islamic extremism. It's perfect for that. And then, but also it was exemplified in the angry old Ayatollah Khomeini. And so, um, as the Israeli strategist put it to Trita Parsi, radical Islam, in, especially in the form of Iran, became the new glue to forge, to, to bind the American-Israel relationship with the demise of the Soviet Union. And of course, at the same time, as Gareth Porter has shown, the American military was you know, all hyped up not to attack Iran, but to sit back and watch them build missiles and pretend to be very, very afraid of their missiles and their nuclear capability and to essentially build them up like a tiny little USSR that we could pretend was a threat that needed to be contained and needed to be preempted and was a reason that we need more aircraft carriers and submarines and these big ticket items. Um, and so this was a deliberate strategy on the part of the military industrial complex and the Israelis at the end of the cold war that we're going to demonize Iraq. We're going to demonize Iran and we're going to use these countries as the excuse to continue our essentially cold war level of spending to the best degree they could. And it worked of course. And of course, and then it also generated the terrorist blowback that led to the pentupling of everything since then too. Very nice. Which is a lot of money. <laughs> oh, I bet. Cool. All right. So that covers that. Let's talk about the news on 28 pages developments in Khashoggi. So I don't, I don't know the first half of that, but uh, the Khashoggi is pretty relevant. Okay. Well, so the 28 pages came out. I don't know if there's actually anything very new that came out. If, if there is was, that a I WikiLeaks missed thing? What is that? I'm sorry? What What is that? Okay. So... Well, first, I plead ignorance if there's a new development, but overall, I can tell you what it is. And it's the 28 pages, really 29, I guess they say now, uh, pages that were redacted from the original Congressional Joint Intelligence Committee investigation of the September 11th attack. And what it is, is it's all information about how the Saudi intelligence officers essentially bankrolled the attack, bankrolled, or at least bankrolled the hijackers while they lived in the country at various times. And um, now in their defense, they actually pay for uh, Saudi's expenses when they come to the United States a lot, but not necessarily Prince Bandar's wife writing checks to him and this kind of thing. It was there's some pretty suspicious stuff. And my wife, Larissa Alexandrovna Horton wrote up a whole thing about this for antiwar.com. If anybody is interested, that to me is pretty much the gold standard take on it. Um, 
I also like Ray Noaleski, I think does a good job on, and he talks about a lot of other stuff too. And of course, uh, Brian McGlinchey runs 28pages.org and he has all, he was the guy that really kind of helped to organize. He didn't really spearhead. I think there was already a movement going on, but he really did a lot of great work to help organize and to lobby for the release and the declassification of those 28 pages, which finally did happen uh, back a couple of years ago. And so, and he has a ton of analysis all about that too. That's at 28pages.org. So people can get all into the nitty gritty of that and jump to whichever conclusions you want. It looks pretty ugly. Um, And then, you know, of course, the obvious question is, well, if Prince Bandar really helped Al-Qaeda to carry this attack out, then wouldn't he have had to have permission from Bush and Cheney? Otherwise, wouldn't he be risking getting H-bombed to death or something like that? I don't know. (laughs) But uh, because after all, those towers could have come down sooner and there could have been a lot higher casualties than I hate to say just 3000. But what if it had been 20? What would have, who would have we have nuked then? I mean, it would have been crazy, man. Think. I don't know how young you were then. It would have been a whole different ball game, man, if it had been 20. It would have been, there would have been, God, I don't know what. I guess it would have carpet bombed Baghdad off the face of the earth, probably, even though, of course, Iraq had nothing to do with it. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, the, the mileage that they got out of the attack as it was went pretty damn far. It's still running right now, so. Shocking. And then what was the second part of that question? Khashoggi. Okay, well, so this this guy, Jamal Khashoggi, is the cousin of Adnan Khashoggi, the Iranian arms dealer, or I guess Saudi arms dealer, who was involved with Gorbanifar and Michael Ledeen and all the guys in the Iran-Contra scandal in the 1980s with this, you know, group of neocon kooks in the Reagan administration, uh, which, you know, as we talked about, I think, on this last one, kind of grew out of the October surprise um, from the hostage crisis uh, in Iran. So so Adnan Khashoggi, you know, this is his cousin. I don't know if they have anything to do with each other. Whatever. Maybe it's just an interesting trivia fucking point or something. But um, so this guy, Jamal Khashoggi, was essentially, you know, um, a representative of one faction of the Saudi royal family who was criticizing another faction he thought from safely behind American lines and then he left the country and got murdered. And it's a really blatant thing. And it really, you know, it's the murder of one guy, which is a big deal. It's everything is life is priceless and all those great stuffs. But the real value to us is in seeing the mentality of the current crown, crown prince of Saudi Arabia, who, when he was 29 years old, was appointed Uh, deputy crown prince and defense minister and almost immediately within two weeks started a war against Yemen that he has continued to wage of course with American support in committing genocide against the people of Yemen and now that the UAE is out he's still just carpet bombing them or not carpet bombing he's still bombing the hell out of Sana even though everybody already knows the game is up there's no way in the world the Saudis are going to win this war but they frame the whole thing as an Iranian war against them And so what are they going to do? Surrender to that. And so he just keeps bombing them and bombing them. Whereas Patrick Coburn wrote at the time, he's doing this for public choice theory reasons. I mean, he didn't use those words, but that's what he wrote about was how this was all about him. This is all about his political position. He's 29 years old. He's the defense minister. Everybody's kind of looking at him and wondering 
is he really a tough guy or what's he going to do? And so he starts a war, you know, to look like a badass, essentially. And then it worked, at least in the short term. He was able to use the momentum from that, apparently, or it coincided with a massive purge against his cousins. And his the, the actual crown prince at the time, Bin Nayef, he had him arrested and hauled off and took his place and declared himself crown prince. And his father, uh, King Bin Salman, is like 87 now or something like that and is essentially you know, comatose sitting on the throne while his son runs everything. And this is essentially such a spoiled brat that if he reads something in the post he doesn't like or he's told about something in the post he doesn't like, he orders this guy who's a pretty prominent guy and representative of a prominent, you know, faction of the royal family and just has him murdered. I don't think, you know, Khashoggi was any kind of prince, but still... You know, he wasn't just some scumbag commoner who you can behead. Uh, And yet they cut him up with a bone saw, apparently. I mean, if you believe um, if you believe the uh, Turks and the CIA, which I'm not sure I do, except I have I don't have any real necessarily real reason to doubt them on this right now. Yeah, why so. would they expose like all their Saudi connections and relations? Like, why would they ex- expose their wrongdoing? Like, that w- wouldn't benefit them. Yeah, um, you know, uh, well, the Turks. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, politics is politics. So yeah, I think they were taking the chance to embarrass the Saudis. That doesn't mean they made it up, though. You know what I mean? Yeah, but not the CIA. Though. Tell. Uh, well, and the CIA. Well. See, that's not true either. In fact, Dan Dan Ellsberg said that to me on the show, and I forgot the proper response to that, is that that's not true. The CIA, they liked Bin Nayef, the cousin, who had worked very closely with them on targeting Al-Qaeda. I guess the ones they didn't want to send to Syria to be moderate rebel suicide bombers, you know. Um, but in other times when they were fighting against Al-Qaeda, he had really cooperated with them a lot, and they liked him just fine, and they were perfectly happy to see him become the new king of Saudi Arabia. And so they were perfectly happy to join up with the Turks in throwing um, Mohammed bin Salman under the bus. Oh, okay, so they're on, on the Turk side because they just see this MBS as a little spoiled brat. He's the and, worst, man. Look at him. He's an yeah. absolute disaster area. What are we going to do if he's the king of Saudi Arabia for 50 years? And there's talk constantly about possible coups and plots, and he lives on his yacht out in the Red Sea. He's afraid somebody's going to kill him. Do you think that's another another reason why Trump is so hated? Just because like he's sending Kushner out there to go on his yacht and everything? I mean, this is part of part of why um, Trump's policies are so hateable. Is that Jared Kushner has worked up this very close relationship with this thug? Yeah. And so look at what position he's put Trump and the rest of us in, in continuing Barack Obama's genocide in Yemen as the most important example. Let's move on to a different hemisphere. So I don't know. This is rundown of the PI, uh, China and the U.S. at present. Okay. well, I don't know what the PI is. But I think, you know, we're headed definitely the wrong direction on China. We've got this terrible policy of it essentially trying to hem them in in any way possible. So, you know, militarily and economically and diplomatically and whatever we can do to try to sabotage them. we got to stay in Afghanistan, says Foreign Affairs. 
in order to uh, keep the Chinese from building a road across Asia, which they might use. I mean, does anybody really think they're going to invade and conquer all Asia? Um, follow America's example of spreading themselves so thin and bleeding themselves to bankruptcy in this way. They consolidated their empire 2,000 years ago or something. What are they going to expand out and conquer a bunch of foreign land now? It doesn't make any sense. But, uh, you know, the Americans see any Chinese gain as essentially at American expense. And Trump has sort of issued a general order. Let's sort of get at them. So you have the Treasury Department and you got the Navy and you got everybody in the world who can try to do anything. The DOJ um, is going after students who, you know, are Chinese and may or may not actually have anything to do with spying on us. We saw what they did to poor Wenho Lee to cover up for John Wong and James Riotti back in the 1990s. I don't know if you know that one. There was this perfectly innocent Taiwanese nuclear scientist. And when Bill Clinton was essentially busted straight taking bribes from a guy named James Riotti um, to put John Wong, his essentially agent, his, uh, you know, asset in charge of licensing missile technology transfers to China for cash for the Clinton campaign in 1996, they went, look, Wen Ho Lee. And they drummed up this entire giant false case, just like they did with Richard Jewell, you know, the um, the hero of the Olympic Park bombing. May he forever be known as that, dude, who saved people's lives in that terrorist attack, who the FBI falsely accused and prosecuted based on their stupid, trumped-up, you know, belief in themselves and their own hunches and garbage. And um, Anyway... So they just mercilessly, mercilessly persecuted this Wenho Lee, and maybe they thought they had a case at first, and there was some kernel of truth to at least their false suspicion, but then politically, it was a perfect distraction from what Bill had really done, so they went after his ass. Um, and so, anyway, I'm off on a tangent, but I hate Bill Clinton so much, but anyway... Um, you know, the deal is this, man. It's a billion people in China. It's a seventh of the population of the planet. And they have plenty of their own problems. And we have plenty of ours. But we got to find a way to work with them. Um, you know what? It used Trade's to... You nice. know what? There's an article. Let me recommend an article to you. It's by Lou Rockwell. And it's called From Death Camp to Civilization. And it's about how the communists came and they just raised the entire society to the ground. Everything. They ruined everything. They destroyed a civilization. People starved to death by the tens of millions. They ate each other. It was the world's worst thing that ever happened. And so Lou's point is, hey, shut up, back off. They're doing great, and we ought to be thanking whatever our religion is to think that Maoism is dead in China, and those people have relative freedom compared to where they were under the worst of, you can't even really call it totalitarianism. It's just nothing. It's just, you're not allowed to trade. Okay, I guess I'll just lay down and die. You can, there's not enough about your life to have totalitarian control over if you're just starving to death on the ground, really, is there? Um, it was the worst thing that ever happened. And so, 
What year um, was that? Americans have their moral panics about China because Americans like being excited and scared of things. I suggest roller coasters and skateboarding and you know physical thrills instead of the horror movie thrill of American foreign policy that, oh no, everyone in the whole world is trying to hurt us and trying to get us and trying to harm us and trying to destabilize us and whatever can our wonderful benevolent Uncle Sam do to protect us if only we give him more money and authority. The whole thing is such a hoax. It's completely ridiculous. And the deal is Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, the best thing that they ever did, the best thing maybe that any American leader ever did was go to China and say enough of this, which also helped to really finally kill off Maoism and help the rise of the right wing of the Communist Party, who are horrible totalitarian fascist monster dictators. They are. I'm not saying that's a single party authoritarian rule in every way, but at least they have prices and they're completely bogus prices because they got paper money like nuts. When Donald Trump says they print money all day and it's bad, he's right. They have huge bubbles everywhere and they have all kinds of problems. But it's so much better than it was before. You can't imagine. You're talking about Mao Zedong and his gang brought that land, that entire massive empire of Southeastern Asia there, or, you know, Eastern Asia there, um, to absolute Stone Age levels. And then finally in the 70s, they were allowed to start back over again from nothing, you know? So, um, we should have a policy of essentially killing them with kindness. See, they say that this has failed. They say that, well, you know, we thought that if we encourage them to embrace markets, that then they'll embrace other kinds of freedom too, more political freedom and more democracy and this and that. Except we never stop making them feel like they're under siege, which only, of course, makes them feel more patriotic and more nationalistic toward their own leaders, just the same way as Americans feel when anybody messes with us. I mean, George Bush, the attack happened on his watch. Everybody could see it. And yet his approval rating went up to 90 percent anyway, because the idea was it wasn't about him. It was just about us and our flag. And, you know, we will all defend ourselves against the terrible world that's assaulting us. That's exactly how the Iranians feel. That's exactly how the Chinese feel all the time. And so, you know, we want them to loosen up so much, but they know if they do that the NED and USAID and the CIA and George Soros is going to be spending zillions of dollars trying to remake their political system, uh, which, you know, it's important to remember the context that the Brits and the Americans have been messing with the Chinese for 150 years over there, waging war against them to force them to open up their markets to British opium traders and all of this stuff. You think the Americans would have forgotten that if they'd done that to us? Um, it's, it's pretty easy to see that point of view. So, but people say that, well, Nixon thought if we opened them up that they would get nicer, but uh-uh, they only got somewhat nicer on standards of living, maybe sure, but not on real political freedom. But so what are you going to do about it? You gonna put a trade embargo on them? You gonna threaten them with war? You gonna treat them like a hostile actor? Or are you just gonna try to, you know, what copy their system, follow us all around with facial recognition and you know social compliance scores and all this crazy stuff? It seems more like their reaction. We hate those Chinese so much. We're gonna adopt their authoritarian system here. And what we should be doing is perfecting our own society. That is making sure that. 
individual liberty is the highest political priority of all Americans and of our all of our politicians and our state and do the best, as Ron Paul would always say, to set a good example for the rest of the world for how to be. You know, so that not in some stupid excuse of a cynical, you know, maneuver to start a war like George W. Bush invoking freedom when, you know, engaging in an aggressive invasion of a country that never threatened us and never attacked us and never dreamed of it in a million years. Um, but really just sell them freedom like on a Ron Paul level. This is how you do it. This is how you do it when all your politicians care about is making sure that the entire Bill of Rights is in a constant state of being perfected in its application uh, for the rights of the accused, the rights of the worshipers, the rights of the journalists, the rights of the gun owners, the rights of the accused and the sued and the everybody else. I mean, what the hell? Um, in that, if there's a social contract, I think that was the core of it, right? And then we'd be in a perfect place to shame the Chinese and go, look, you should be more like us and we wouldn't be blood-soaked monster hypocrites and also, you know, creeping fascist authoritarians too, um, but instead could mean what we say and actually have a positive effect on the world. But that's the difference between real libertarianism and neoliberalism, this, you know, sickening, imperialistic, pro-business, but not really pro-capitalism, um, you know, American crony system that we have here and the ideology that supports it. Yeah, bummer. Yep. Well, I think that covers that. I also want to talk about the whole Beijing extradition thing. And when you had Reese Elric on, that's a beautiful little short uh, recap of what's going on. Maybe we can talk about the yeah. I know very little about that. I mean, CIA coup thing. The which coup? I mean, it, it's just kind of like hypothesizing. Oh, um, in the, the whole, Hong Kong thing. Yeah, yeah. So Reese said he sees no indication that the NED or any American you know, Soros-backed NGOs are intervening or anything like that. Now, I don't think he was stating unequivocally that there's no chance of it or anything like that, but he said he didn't see any indication of that. What really happened was a guy from Hong Kong committed a crime in Taiwan, and he couldn't be extradited because they didn't have an, an extradition agreement with Taiwan, which, if people aren't familiar, is an independent country from China, uh, in practice and, um, you know, virtually in theory, although that's contested. What happened was it turned out that it was kind of a moot point because for whatever reason, the Taiwanese weren't interested in prosecuting this guy anyway. And we're going to let him get away with murdering his girlfriend on their soil. I'm not sure why. Um, but then, so they passed a law. There was an outcry about this because this murderer got away with it over a technicality. So there was a law proposed, and Reese says this was not some plot that had anything to do with Red China at all or whatever. It just came up. and um, But then the implication was that they would be able to extradite people in Hong Kong more easily to mainland China, which is, you know, it's connected and shared sovereignty, kind of a weird situation there. Hong Kong being a former British colony until the late 90s and officially part of China again, but not completely under their rule and this kind of strange autonomy situation that they have. But the new extradition law apparently would have applied to Red China too. And so the people of Hong Kong panicked and thought they weren't going to be protected. And so the deal is about that is... 
in the law, it would not, it would absolutely exclude supposedly the idea of, um, of the extradition of anyone that the Hong Kong government didn't agree needed to be extradited. Uh, you know, they would have their say in it and that they would definitely exclude any kind of political persecution. And yet they're saying, uh, uh-uh, man, we don't even want to let you experiment with this kind of test of our liberty at all. And we're afraid that we're going to end up seeing people uh, extradited for things that now you're promising they won't be. We know how good those promises will be in the future. So that was really the core of why they were all protesting. And, you know, I have no idea, actually, the current state of that law. And, you know, I forget if it was even actually signed or that it was just about to be. I think it was. And they're trying to get it repealed or something. But um, that's the best I learned of it from reading Reese's piece. And I got to tell you the truth. I have not been reading a lot about it at all. That's, you know, I've read like two or three articles, but I got most of that from his stuff and what he said on my show. Right on. All right. So oh, that's an interesting question. We're almost done here, though. Um, so he's basically saying not to sound like a nut job. What are what out there conspiracy theory? What do you say has the most validity? What would be something that you can't prove or disprove something that although sounds crazy to the average person makes sense in uh, your worldview, which I mean, the first one that that comes to mind is like, if anything, a one world government, but I think there's just too much in there to really well the thing is it's like this within the u.n there there have always been people who in the u.s who wanted a one world state and some of them were more serious about sharing power with other governments and other people of the world and others who really saw it only as a fig leaf for the american empire and i think that that's really the real way to understand that is how a bunch of right-wing nationalist business imperialists get a bunch of do-gooder liberals on board for war. Well, you call it humanitarianism, and you call it international law, you call it global governance, and you call it, you know, international broadening and deepening of cooperation and agreements. But what it all really is, is it's the American imperial order. Um, And it's smart of them, right, to not say, we are the American empire the way the British did, that they picked up from. They said, look, we're just here to protect you from the communists. We're just here to build global structures of freedom in the Cold War um, so that everybody who's not under the sway of the commies can, uh, you know, benefit from all of the trade and capitalism and, and the rest of the American global order which we had inherited essentially all of the world empires at the end of the Second World War. I mean, Russia and China got Russia and China. Russia got Eastern Europe. Uh, China got China and, uh, you know, North Korea. And there's, you know, a little bit of influence there. But essentially, all of Japan and their empire and all of the European empires all fell into the United States' uh, sway. And... um, Backyard... And so, yeah, I mean, the deal is, you know, they created the United Nations in order to essentially make permanent. I think who the U.N. Security Council is. It's the victors of World War Two. And they go, so this is the new order. America's dominant. Every other every country that fought in World War Two lost it other than us. Right. The Soviets won it, too. But they also lost 30 million people or so. And so, yeah, they kind of also lost while they were winning in in the worst terms imaginable honestly um and so 
um, America, you know, was bestride the world in the American century and all this stuff. And so had all of this dominance and, you know, they need to have a broad consensus for doing this kind of thing. And so if you make it all about spreading the goodness of American values, then that's good public relations, essentially. And, you know, it's funny because if you go back all the way to Cecil Rhodes and his confession of faith back in the 1880s, he says that essentially the goal is for England and America to reunite in a permanent alliance and to conquer the planet in order to force them to elect good men, as Woodrow Wilson would say. That we are going to, when he invaded Mexico, that's what he said, we're going to teach them to elect good men. We're going to create democracies for them. We're going to give them bicameral legislatures and black-robed judges. And we're going to make sure that everybody does everything our way. And because our way, the Anglo-American way, is the superior thing and this and that. And so, and this is what Darth Vader said too, right? End the conflict and bring order. And, and, and not exactly peace, but something like that. And dominance in the place of open conflict right and so it's all justified that's the whole point that's what the united that's what the one world government is about and as far as like all the secret societies behind it and all that i i left all that garbage behind a long time ago man you know i think another the great example go ahead oh i I was just saying that stuff's fun like i still have yet to get into the blue bloods and all that crap yeah I mean, there's sure there's plenty of history there. You know what you do? If you read Wall Street Banks and American Foreign Policy by Murray Rothbard, that is, hey, it's the Rothbardian take on essentially the John Birch Society's conspiracy theory history of the 20th century. The Morgans and the Rockefellers. That's what the John Birchers always talked about. The Morgans, the Morgans, the Morgans, the Rockefellers, the Rockefellers. Well, so here's not the John Bircher crazies, but Murray. Yeah. Uh, the great Murray Rothbard going, look, here's the real truth about this history. And here is how this senator made sure to get this banker's daughter married to this guy in order to get away with this heist. I mean, it's in there and it's perfect. And it's not conspiracy theory crankery. It's real ass revisionist history. But what I mean is it's on exactly the right topic you're looking for, only not through the twisted lens of a weird paranoid right winger. You know, it's the great Rothbard who knows his ass from his elbow. And that becomes important when you're asking these questions. And so I think that's how you really get to the heart of this stuff, man, is read that and you get a pretty good taste of of what the Council on Foreign Relations is really about versus the totally fine official story and also versus the more kind of kooky take about their secret rule over the planet or whatever. That's not really the center of things. It's just a thing is what it is, but it's important. But, you know. Um, Say so that title that. And then, one more time for anyone who wants to read that. The, oh, the uh, Wall Street Banks and American Foreign Policy by Murray Sweet. Rothbard. And it's at lewrockwell.com. And great, great stuff. And then, of course, there's September 11th, where it's the greatest conspiracy theory ever. And yet 99.9% of it is total garbage. And I resent that so much because... Any honest person who knows anything about the story really has to be suspicious about some pretty suspicious things like who did the anthrax attack 
And how come the Israelis seem to know, uh, you know, had intelligence officers in the country who seem to know what was going on? I don't see any real direct evidence that they were running the op, but I really don't know what the hell they were doing. They sure weren't helping the FBI round them up. So, um, and of course, we, we talked about the Saudi money. And the question of the intent behind that Saudi money. But, of course, Dick Cheney never tortured Prince Bandar and said, give it up, pal. Why'd your wife send a check to the FBI informant whose house the CIA or the the Saudi, you know, Al-Qaeda guys were staying at? Um, You know, one theory was that the CIA and this was Ray Noaleski thinks that Alex Station, CIA uh, bin Laden office, was trying to recruit these two guys, the San Diego cell, who ended up being the pilots of Flight 77, and that they just botched that, and they were in no way qualified to be running these guys or trying to figure out a way to recruit them. They were like the women analysts of Alex Station and, and, uh, and botched the whole thing, and that was why the CIA didn't share with the FBI all this stuff. And then, of course, you got to read Bamford, too, The Shadow Factory by James Bamford, about what all the NSA refused to share with CIA and FBI and all these things. Anyway, nobody was ever really held accountable, and so nobody ever squealed on anybody else. And, of course, Bush and Cheney and Israel and Saudi and whoever all exploited the hell out of it to the absolute nth degree beyond anyone's wildest dreams to the point where they might as well have done it. You're going to cynically exploit the death of thousands of innocent Americans to trick even, in some cases, their direct relatives into joining the army to attack Saddam Hussein? That's not fair, man. That's not okay to do that. They exploited that thing so bad and tried to claim they had some doctrine that meant that they had to or something. Oh, man. I mean, they did. It was called the clean break. So, yeah, exactly right. Uh, the clean break for securing the realm for Israel, uh, as according to David Wormser and Richard Pearl. That's exactly right. So, um, there's, uh, there's plenty of reason to be suspicious, but there's a lot of fake conclusions and and you know ridiculous framings of questions you know huh is that i wonder if some of those fake ones were just made by the cia just to create more confusion unnecessary unnecessary there are enough hoaxers and clowns and goofballs in the world to assume whatever they want and put up a page about it and rumors go around and see, you know, this is something that Max Blumenthal really talks about in his new book, the management of savagery is that because no one was really honest with the American people that these guys used to work for the U S this is absolutely direct blowback from Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and George Bush and Bill Clinton's horrible fucking foreign policies. That is what has caused this because that was all covered up. And so Bush had a narrative that said they hate us because we're free. The more white and Christian and innocent and decent we are, the more their sick, evil, twisted Muslim religion makes them psychopathic monsters who want to kill us. And so what can we do other than kill them? Uh, You know, there's no, uh, you know, dealing rationally with an enemy like that, except so the thing is, is people could tell that that wasn't true. But they didn't have a very good alternative explanation. And so instead of looking at the consequences of American foreign policy in the 20th century, the idea was just that the whole thing was a put on. 
And so, you know what? It's pretty sad that at the end of the day, that even without being able to prove, as you can tell, I'm not claiming to be able to prove any kind of theory about the Israelis or the Saudis or Dick Cheney or anything like that. I really don't think I have a solid case, but you got to admit that even what we all know is true about how the government exploited it. Essentially, any truther is closer to the truth of the matter than the official story that they hate us for how innocent we are. If you understand what I mean. Because at least the truther's point is that, yeah, it was done so that it could be cynically exploited so that more people could be killed and more money made and more realms secured. And so that much sure seems to be right in effect. Accessory after the fact or however you want to call that. You know, I'm not a lawyer. That's the other guy. I mean, it's just a repeat of like, any policy they try to pass through. It's not in the benefit of the American people or any people in any other country. It's just a heads of state matter. Yep. So, I mean, they have that much right. And I least. will say, too, though, man, that the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA hated each other's guts and with good reason. You might have seen, and people should look at this, man. There's a clip of Michael Scheuer on YouTube testifying before Congress. Oh, you sent me that. And he says that the only good thing that happened on September 11th was that the World Trade Center came down on John O'Neill's head. Wow. Like openly celebrating the death of John O'Neill in the attack because here was a guy who wanted to take all the intelligence about Al-Qaeda and lock it up behind a grand jury wall. And Michael Shore is ready to call out a predator drone on his ass. Because Michael Scheuer worked for the CIA. His job was hunting and killing these guys, not reading them their rights. And so there was a real conflict there. And then as Scheuer and they all complain, and again, Bamford's book, where the NSA hoarded everything they had about Al-Qaeda and wouldn't share it and left these guys where they absolutely, if only they had known this, this, and that, then sure. And then there's also a great, I like to mention this too. I don't know if this is still on Twitter. I think I tried to find it once and I couldn't find it anymore. But it's Alex Gibney, the famous uh, documentary filmmaker, Alex Gibney and Doug Miller, the FBI agent, Ali Soufan, the FBI agent, and Lawrence Wright, the author of The Looming Tower and uh, reporter for The New Yorker magazine. And it's like a 10 minute long little documentary. It's this tiny little documentary. And one of the anecdotes in there is that Ali Soufan, the FBI agent, was investigating the coal attack in Yemen. On September 11th and when the attack happens and he hears about it he gets a call you better come down to the embassy i.e. CIA headquarters in Yemen right he comes down to the embassy the CIA officer liaison whatever the hell hands him a manila folder he opens it up and there's all the intelligence about the meeting in Malaysia which included all the guys who attacked the coal and all the guys, or not all, but many of the guys who were the plotters and planners and participants in September 11th, including those, the San Diego cell I mentioned previously. And Ali Soufan says, and I absolutely believe him when he tells this story, he's not lying. You can just tell. Ali Soufan says, he, he opens up this manila envelope, he sees the intelligence, this little flow chart of these guys from the Malaysia meeting, and he goes, oh my God, there it is, right there. There's your conspiracy for the September 11th attack, right here. And then, obviously, the conclusion being, if only he had known, if only they had told him all along about this Malaysia meeting, the FBI could have known about who all these guys were in the country, and they didn't. 
And I think that's true. That the was FBI, they missed their chances to know that this was really happening under their nose. So he kept that information and didn't share CIA it. kept it from the FBI. I'm saying how, the CIA finally gave it, it to the FBI after it was too late. Two hours too late. Here you uh, go, pal. Here's what you could have used to stop the attack that just happened. So what's the beef between the two agencies? They're a bunch of pigs. They hate each other's guts. They're a bunch of meathead killers and thugs. And, of course, they hate each other. They should. They're all horrible, hateful people. And they're all stepping on each other's toes and jurisdictions and powers and authorities, you know. Okay, so it's just a bunch of schoolgirls, man. Agency over the other, like, oh, you can't do this, but we're going to do this instead. Like, oh, you you can't. And you got to recognize there's a real conflict between the missions of the FBI and the CIA, really. And uh, one of the major conflicts there was always about the FBI's use of the grand jury. Once you take the intelligence before the grand jury, it's locked up. You're not going to share it with the CIA first. You could see why Michael Scheuer just absolutely thought that John O'Neill was as responsible for the September 11th attack as Osama bin Laden. He was the head of the New York office's counterterrorism division. And he ended up getting run out of power because he was such an arrogant jerk inside the FBI. And also he was up against the most arrogant jerk in in FBI history since Hoover in Louis Free and um, had gotten canned out of the FBI. And so went to work as head of security at the World Trade Center because he just knew it was a target. It was going, going to be the target again. They were coming back for it and he knew it. And that was why he was there that day. And then Scheuer hated this. Scheuer was the head of the CIA's bin Laden unit, former. And he hated John O'Neill so much that he openly celebrated in front of Congress, on the record, in front of a bunch of cameras, his death that day. And that was why. And he goes, he was responsible for the attack. It's only poetic justice that he die in this son of a bitch, you know? I can kind of see his point, although he's dead, so he can't defend himself. And I know Shoyer's point of view, but still. But yeah, I mean, and and it goes around and around like that. Read The Shadow Factory. It's incredible, man. I'm telling you. Like half of it is about how they spy on you. But the other half is about how, you know, this didn't just happen on the FBI and the CIA's watch and on George Bush's National Security Council's watch. This happened on the NSA's watch too. Michael Hayden, who was supposed to be... I'll give you an example out of it. I know we're going way over time here. Shit. Um, um, But there was an example where CIA was trying to get the intercepts from Afghanistan and they couldn't get them. And the NSA would not share them. And at that time, the director of the Central Intelligence Agency was also the DCI, the director of Central Intelligence, which is the job that is now called the director of national intelligence, which is now a separate job from head of the CIA. But back then, whoever was the head of the CIA was also the director of all the intelligence agencies. So George Tenet had the authority to go to NSA and say, give me now or else. But he wouldn't do it. And according to Michael Shoyer, he lacked the moral courage to go over there and tell Michael Hayden to goddamn cooperate. And so it just didn't get done. And so you know what happened? Get this. Seriously. The CIA built their own listening station on Madagascar to try to intercept the Al-Qaeda telephone calls from the Yemen switchboard house where they were keeping communication between America, Europe, and Afghanistan. And the CIA, though, could only pick up the Yemen side of the phone call. They could never hear what was being said on the other line. 
from the other side, from Afghanistan or from Europe or the U.S. And so they were trying to get the NSA to cooperate and they wouldn't do it. And their boss wouldn't go to their boss and get it solved either. And so, you know, that goes to show it shouldn't be hard to imagine that this is how a bunch of pigs are. You know, I saw a documentary one time about these heroic firefighters who are fighting a wildfire in, I'm almost certain it was Colorado. And they were from a federal agency and they were out there fighting this wildfire. And there was just like four miles down the road was a state agency with the same job of being, you know, the Parks and Wildlife Department or whatever. And these two groups of guys hated each other's guts. And the, the state guys got word that there was a shift in the weather coming. The, the wind was about to change directions. And they withheld that information from the firefighters on the mountain because screw them. They can take care of themselves. Meh. And they all died. They were burnt to death. And this is a group of American Coloradoans all who work both doing the same job for two different government departments in the same county. And one group of them let another 20 of them get burned to death because boo-hoo, it's lunchtime and that's not my job. So that's who these people are. They're a bunch of disgusting pigs, of course. They hate each other just as much as we hate them. That's why we should elect Jacob Hornberger to abolish the CIA. Okay. And then Ruby Ridge, real quick. <laughs> that was one of them, right? And then I got to go. Ruby Ridge was this. Cool. The ATF set up an innocent man. They uh, knew that he had gone to some white supremacist rally out there in Idaho and so they approached him or had some association with those guys, uh, just barely. And they came to him and they got an undercover informant to be his very best friend and convince him to sell a couple of rifles. I'm pretty sure they were rifles, not shotguns. And uh, I'm pretty sure. Anyway, and they were like three eighths of an inch too short. So, haha, gotcha on a technicality. Now, why'd they do this to him? Just because they were trying to coerce him to um, extort him into becoming an informant so that he would go and, you know, tell on other, uh, you know, white separatist types that and get them in trouble. And he refused to go along with that. So then they went to prosecute him for the guns, but then they deliberately sent him the wrong court date. So then when they didn't, when he didn't show up, they could put another warrant out on him for skipping his bail. So then some federal marshals showed up at his property where he lived on this mountain. It's kind of poor guy living in essentially a cabin up there. And his 14 year old son, Sammy and his dog were out with the family friend, Kevin Harris. I'm 99% sure that was his name. Um, although that's the name of an old professional skateboarder, and I don't remember making that connection before. <laughs> but anyway, I'm pretty sure that was his name. Um, and, um, and so the dog caught the scent of the marshals and ran at them. And of course, the marshals opened fire and shot the dog. Well, these boys don't leave the house without their rifles. So the 14-year-old boy, Sammy, returns fire essentially blindly into the woods. He, I, I don't think, could see his targets or where the, exactly the shot had come from that killed his dog. But he goes, ah, rah, and, and shoots. He doesn't hit either of the marshals. They both turn and run, Harris and, and the son, Weaver's son. 
and the marshals then shoot the boy in the back and they say he looked like he was 12 years old he was a young 14 year old you know and looked very young for his age and they shot him two or three times in the back and killed him and then and they wounded the friend harris who then got away and then but one of the cops got shot but it was shown later at the trial that it was one of the cops shot the other cop he was trying to do some stunt roll where he would you know do this dive and roll and get up and fire but he shot his buddy right in the back and then they proved that they faked all the crime scene pictures and moved all the bullet casings around and all of their fraud so the whole thing that originally started it off was ATF entrapping an innocent man in order to extort him into extorting other people and entrapping other people, essentially. Then the marshals go, and then they deliberately send him the wrong court date. The marshals show up, screw up, shoot the dog and the boy, and wound the friend. Then the FBI hostage rescue team shows up. And these guys are essentially a special operations group. I mean, they're trained at Fort Bragg. They're not... You know, I'm sure Delta Force doesn't give them the full respect that they think they deserve or whatever. But for our intents and purposes, they are no different than a Navy SEAL team um, or or uh, uh, some kind of, um, you know, Green Beret team that would do a night raid on a house in Afghanistan or something like that. These are the Waco killers, you know, just a few months later, of course. And so they show up and their sniper, Lon Horiuchi, shoots the wife in the head, blows her head off, essentially, while she's holding a a young baby in her arms. I think like a two month old baby in her arms and and kill her. And then they lay siege to the whole place. They bring out all the helicopters and all their tanks and all their equipment. And then they make such a big deal out of the fact that Randy Weaver was a former Green Beret himself. And so therefore... Just go ahead and indulge yourself, TV audience, in all of your fantasies that this is Rambo, this hardened killer who has one good M60 with a limitless amount of bullets, and he's prepared to take out all of our law enforcement heroes if something isn't done, and all of this stuff, when every bit of this had been precipitated against him for no reason whatsoever. He'd never done anything to anybody, and... Um, oh, and they, you know, they mocked him about his dead wife and dead son and whatever through their loudspeakers for a few days and all this stuff. And then eventually, um, a guy who was highly regarded in the special forces community named Bogue Wrights came and, and essentially acted as the mediator and negotiated Weaver's surrender. And then they mercilessly prosecuted him. And then, man, it is so fun to read Alan Bach's great book. I mean, it'll drive you crazy, the thing, too. But Alan Bach wrote this great book called Ambush at Ruby Ridge. And the way he portrays that trial, oh, my God. Like, here's what happens. The prosecution puts on their case. The defense gets up and cross-examines all their witnesses. It's the defense's turn. And the defense says, nope, we have no witnesses, Your Honor. We already won this case. It's done. And that was it. And then the jury came back and decided in his favor and said they would have been glad to prosecute all of the cops who were involved in this and that he was innocent. And, you know, for a supposed, you know, this is what they did to the guy, too. They go, white separatist Randy Weaver. Like, that's his first name. You know, like he's Governor Randy Weaver. This is his title. And, and so here's a guy who lives with his family on a mountain separate from everyone, including other white people. Right. But it's like, 
They're white, so they're white separatists. Meanwhile, his day job was working as a mechanic in a garage with a black boss that he got along just fine with. Apparently, there was no like animosity between them. He was one of these guys who, um, you know, I think rather than finding excuses for hatred, he actually literally was reading the Bible so literally in some parts of the Old Testament where it was really just a matter of religious belief that everybody's supposed to be separate since the fall of the Tower of Babel or whatever kind of, you know, pretty old school way of thinking that most Americans don't agree with. But he wasn't hurting anyone. He didn't do anything. And they did this to him. And it was a real test for can the federal government just outright go to war with a targeted group, demonize the hell out of them and go after them, you know, like the old days of targeting the left in the 60s and 70s. Can they do this with the right and whoever they want? And the answer was yes. And then, of course, Waco happened again, like six months later, the Waco raid and then the massacre. Um And you know what? It's a problem, though, that those two get lumped together, but then they're considered like isolated incidents, the two of them in a pair. And then if anything, somehow McVeigh justified them after the fact, because what? He was a Branch Davidian who went forward in time to commit that attack and therefore justify the killing of all his kin or something? Uh, Yeah, no. But that was the way people considered it. But here's the real reality. Why are either of these notable as a pair? It's be, or, or why are the two notable as a pair? Because they were sieges. The good guys fought off the bad guys at first. Uh, you know, on the first day. The victims fought off the aggressors is really the better way to put it. Um, and so, uh, in, in both cases... Um, But so then became a siege and the media spectacle and then the insane, overly militarized response with the, you know, the catastrophic ending, of course, in the case of Waco. Um, But uh, the thing is, is this goes on all the time and it's almost unbelievable. But there are 50,000 SWAT raids a year in this country. 50,000. Well, there's only 52 weeks in the year and some of those got holidays and things going on so we're talking to essentially about a thousand SWAT raids a week on people's Changed homes paramilitary on, uh, raids in the middle of the night kicking in people's doors humiliating them in front of their wives and daughters like we're all Afghans now you know and it's absolutely you know out of control and and these I see these I saw them then as real test cases right it was like a trial balloon Can we get away? What if we send a few more tanks? How many tanks can we send before people start thinking, hey, now wait a minute? Right? And then the answer was a lot. We can even burn them down and call it a suicide and people go along with that too. Hell, this is easy. And so, which was really bad that, you know, that goes to the part of the American people's responsibility in that. Because if they had all said, hey, hell no, you know, no more SWAT raids for anybody. You know, SWAT teams are for hostage situations at banks, not for kicking in people's doors at their homes. Whatever happened to come out with your hands up, dude? This is America, not China, right? Or what? In fact, in China, I don't know if they do SWAT raids this bad. They sure have a bad death penalty in police state over there. I don't want to make light of it, but. Um, so that's that. Was, it, was there any more? Because I really got to go. And we're no. already at almost an hour and a half, and nobody's going to want to listen to this anymore. <laughs> that was it. No, that was perfect. Okay, great. 
All right. Well, listen, thanks for doing this. And thank you, everybody, for your questions. And, you know, for people who hear this later on, the reason these people got to ask these questions is because they are members of the Reddit group. So if you donate five bucks a month to the show by way of the Institute or uh, Libertarian Institute or to the Scott Horton Show, um, you get keys to the Reddit group. And uh, happy to have you there. And uh, thank you very much again for doing this, Phil. Keep it, bro. All right. See ya.